Cavalcade Audio Productions presents Star Drifter, the science fiction patio book series written and read by David Collins Rivera. Book Three, Risk Analysis. Chapter Eight. One of the lawyers for UH chimed in. Can you tell us how you became chief of... uh, What was it you said? AdSec chief will do. I guess it started with the repairs that Shady Lady needed. All the way back there? It's a long story. The people across the table all leaned together in little bunches muttering and whispering confusedly and giving me irritated looks. They eventually chose not to pursue that line of inquiry further. What evidence led you to conclude there was an enemy surveillance network in place? Emeros asked instead, sounding perplexed by this point as well. The prisoner hasn't been interviewed or debriefed yet due to the nature of his injuries. He's scheduled for extensive therapy and rehabilitation, but we're told he might not turn out, well, as quite the man he used to be. I'm still in the middle of Root Management Authority debriefs concerning the mission, and my assigned interviewers all warned me not to go into detail here. Those debriefs count as legal testimony. This meeting does not. I might find myself in trouble if I inadvertently say something to you folks that's compromising or in contravention of my interview statements. The RMA had been asking all the questions you'd expect. When, where, what, who, and why, and most pressingly, who else? My interrogators were pros. I was doing my best to cooperate, except where non-disclosure agreements came into play, at which time I would simply state I wasn't legally allowed to answer. They weren't always inclined to let that slide and would often get right in my face and scream. They even dropped some veiled threats of physical coercion, though nothing explicit that I could use as a loophole in the discretion contracts. Threats of violence would invalidate those NDA agreements, but that might well have opened up a political can of worms. The interviewers were very careful not to do that accordingly, so I was careful too. You can't give us any more details than that? I was too frustrated to keep it out of my voice. I might be able to help for crying out loud. Dieter just shook his head stubbornly and replied, You know I can't. 
The damage to Star Jump is critical and unfixable. Without replacement parts, we are stuck here. What about the rest of the damage? Chris asked through a sour face that looked like I felt. Can the other sections be repaired? The other sections are repaired, he said. There was severe damage to a few things, but I had print schematics for those and manufactured replacements. Star Jump, though, has several key components that are not in the print database. They also contain materials we don't have in raw supply. Mavis has been given the complete reports. If you won't take my word for it, ask her. It's true, she confirmed, her unblinking gaze shifting from one to the other of us in the common room. She rested them on me a moment longer than the others, probably because I'd gotten loud. The damage lies in an area of the system that's directly covered by the NDA that both of us signed. We can't tell you anything other than the fact that it's fried. My engineering skills aren't anywhere near Dieter's, obviously, or even yours, Ejok, but his report is pretty clear. There's no fixing it. And no replacing it either, Chris stated, repeating their words and putting a period on any more debate. I had just opened my mouth to argue. So what are our options? This question got nothing but silence, and we all pondered the problem. It went on for a long time until Stina spoke up in her usual blunt fashion. We have to turn ourselves in, she said, as if she was speaking about a minor point of detail. The rest of us looked at her like her head had just fallen off. Well, that's never gonna happen, John laughed. Psh, they already tried to kill us, Chris added with a snort, still perplexed by her obtuseness. They're much more likely to blow us out of space than accept any surrender. It's my idea, she said, staring at us all like we were too stupid to follow. Come up with one of your own before you make fun of it. But no one had anything, so the mirth died as fast as it was born. Let's look at this as if it were a simple problem, I stated after a time. I know it's not, but run with me for a moment. We need to leave. This ship has broken parts and can't jump. We either find another ship to stow away on, turn ourselves in, or somehow find the parts elsewhere in system. I saw a news vid once about star jump hobos, Mavis proclaimed, looking revolted. They have to hide in tiny crawlways and live in their own filth for the duration of the flight. Nope, not gonna happen. And starship security in this system will be far better than it would be for some tramp freighter on a remote high dock. John put in. I doubt we'd even make it. Okay, I said with a nod. So that leaves, um, giving up. And I frowned at Stina, who just stared back. Or we try to get the parts we need. Didn't I see the log transponder ID for a big parts supply ship in the traffic report last night? Yeah, John replied, waving for a drop down and bringing up the relevant data. It showed an exterior view of a boxy Emlator-class large container ship, which went by the name of General Store. Those guys would have what you need, wouldn't they? Dieter just shook his head. Not a chance. Our star jump is heavily modified to mute its graviton expression. They're not working on stealth tech here. 
Basically, we won't find the parts for this drive anywhere other than Meerschaum itself. Can't you adapt something? I pressed, because he was being remarkably dismissive for a guy remarkably short on details. With what? A star drive that broadcasts our presence to the entire system? Why not? What do you mean, why not? I mean, so what if they detect our exit cone? I replied. They already know we're here somewhere. Who cares if they see a cloud of dust when we take off? We'll be gone. He pondered that for a bit, as did everyone else. There can't be anything in that supply ship that will fit, he said, but without the same conviction as before. In fact, he spoke as if he was actively picturing the process. Not perfectly, maybe, Chris chimed in, but well enough. They must have spare drives for those little couriers, Mavis concluded. Not the bigger civvy ones the station is using, but the tiny jump drones that Liquidator sends out? Those are vital for communication with their home offices and team headquarters. General Store is providing support for both the civvy and team vessels. John, can we get a list of its inventory? John turned to Stina, who, for her part, looked interested. Or, I don't know, something other than her usual wall-like manner. I think so. SS-1 and SS-2 went to work for just a minute or so. The contents of the stock and manufacturing rooms aboard General Store were not encrypted, though were behind a great deal of network protection. Stina slipped in like water under a door, easily, inexorably, and with a graceful fluidity. The attack held all the simple beauty her personality seemed to lack. Cross-checking for the systems required, the two sensor specialists zeroed in on a section dedicated to support craft, and then further down to courier parts in particular. They have base materials in stock, SS2 announced, as well as schematics for the printers. It's flagged as buildable. What do you need? Dieter hemmed and hawed for a bit, then said, Jump field propagators. John dug through the lists and part numbers for a bit, then came to one that looked right. Is that it? He asked the engineer, who was studying the hollow image intently. Yeah, if it needs building, though, they'll have to print and form it for us. Easy enough, John answered, seeming to revel in the pure joy of cracking the supply chain. With a wave, he ticked off an option and dropped a print and forming request into the job queue. They'll have fully functional propagators ready in, um, looks like they're backed up a bit, but the estimate for this PFR is about four days from now. General Store is in high orbit around PS2GG for easy support of the entire system. We can be there just about the same time the parts roll off the forming line. You'd be able to make those work, right? The captain pressed. Well, I have no idea answered the engineer, but he waved up an entry for one of the jump-capable courier drones that Shady Lady had flagged a few weeks before. There were general specs for it in our own files, being of a fairly common type found throughout corporate territory and elsewhere. Hmm, if I adjust the power regulation to within the right tolerances, and they're a little on the long side, but... 
Maybe. So we looked at each other for confirmation, or support, or just something that might be construed as consensus, which was completely pointless since Captain Singleton spoke up then. Maybe is good enough for me, she declared. I want my ship functional. From this point on, we bend all our efforts to one goal, getting out of here. Unless someone else has another idea, a better idea. But no one did. Okay then, this crew has the order. We have to get hold of those parts, drop anything you're doing that isn't critical. We have a ship to repair. Dieter ended up risking a walk outside after all to put a patch on the damaged exterior. We'd be approaching a heavily trafficked area and could use all the invisibility we could get. It was a fast job and he was done in less than an hour, covering the damage with a piece of jet black fabric I wasn't supposed to look at or ask about. Approaching General Store stealthily would take upwards of a week if we wanted to be as sure as possible of being undetected. This was good, really, because we had a lot to plan out. On the surface of it, gunnery was completely irrelevant here. The idea was to sneak aboard in some fashion. In practice, I was simming close in action the whole time, just in case. Chris and I both championed the idea of bluffing our way aboard the supply ship with some trumped-up credentials and uniforms. Dieter and the sensor specials all thought slipping aboard through an exterior emergency hatch was a better idea. Mavis, who had the final say, had yet to decide, since none of us had compelling arguments beyond personal preferences. When we got closer, more details would be available. John and Stina had gotten most of our sensors back up by this point. There were some lingering issues with the X-band detector that couldn't be straightened out without an energy source in the right range of frequencies to measure against, but we hadn't actually needed it for this mission. If things went south, I wanted to be ready despite all. Chris and I didn't have our same old argument about conflict resolution, but he did give me some pointed looks when we were going over the plans, such as they were. He didn't say what he thought I should do, and I didn't tell him what I thought either. As a crew, we'd gotten away from the regular day-night thing, now that there was an exterior goal to focus on. I had scenarios constantly simming, and was trying to be ready for everything while counting on nothing I didn't have direct control over myself. I also looked at all the ways the ship could be discovered to begin with, and determined that our biggest weakness was daylight. Being a jet-black object against a well-lighted supply ship would be our undoing. Mavis had already stated that we'd be approaching General Store while it was in the shadow of the gas giant. Seeing as how this was a vector alignment issue more than anything, it seemed like a short window of opportunity. The big ship itself had a number of blind spots. Directions of approach that allowed for no clear optical views by the systems and people aboard, if we stuck to them closely. Those looking at us from outside the ship, however, could be a problem. 
The team vessels had sensors back up by now, but the scientists on Mylag Vernier did not. Considering the sensitive and granular quality of their instruments, the flash which had apparently hammered out as a bubble of energy to nearly two-thirds the diameter of the star system, had hurt them worst of all. Most of the many monitor drones were still offline. The decrypted talk by engineers and other specialists indicated that this could result in a delay of six months or even more before the next test could be performed. There was some disagreement as to whether or not to purchase and deploy another swarm of the observation and communication robots, very expensive, or to send out repair drones to readjust them all individually, very slow. So with the best sensors in the star system still blinded, we had some breathing space and latitude of action. If we were diligent and could avoid bad decisions, no one would see us approaching. If we were impatient and or stupid, they most certainly would, and we'd be too far in system to get away a second time. I'll admit to a sudden stab of panic as we were in final approach to our hidden rendezvous point above PS2GG. With the tiniest puffs of accelerant, Mavis dropped us into a geostationary orbit so that we essentially hovered in the planet's shadow while it spun on below us. We matched vectors with the big ship's orbit while it was on the sunny side of the gas giant and waited for the supply ship to approach. In point of fact, we had been easing closer and closer bit by bit, and General Store had sailed on by at least 14 times before we were ready. The idea was to remain static until a precisely calculated moment, then accelerate just a bit in the same direction as the big ship, matching its trajectory before it crested the horizon. It would then approach us slowly on the shadow side, and, if all went well, we'd be able to close the gap. Against General Store's huge size, we'd be just an insignificant speck to any distant opticals. Considering that we'd destroyed the test ship, Team wouldn't be inclined to ignore anything it saw including insignificant specs. They'd be paranoid, and rightfully so. But they were also mostly blinded, so if we were going to make a move, now was the time. Once we sidled up, there would be a period of about three hours while we traversed across the bright side when anyone who looked closely enough might see us parked there, right next to the huge vessel, plain as day. Our plan was predicated on the assumption that no one would bother looking that closely if they weren't given a reason to. Without question, it had to be pulled off in as little time as possible, so the details consumed us. We don't have clearance to come aboard the normal way, and we don't have the right uniforms to just sneak aboard and walk around. How can you possibly think we can talk our way in? Chris looked at me with plain confusion. The ship's complement, save Mavis, sat around the table again in the common room. The captain listened closely from the open cockpit. The others waited for my counter-argument, but Dieter jumped in with one of his own. People can be fooled easier than embedded ident sensors. We'd stand a better chance of a successful bluff if we had a good cover story. I can get into their system and deactivate sensors, Stina said quietly but that might get noticed. SS-1 looked at her with exasperation. 
Really? You think so? Mulling it over a bit, and frankly, having been convinced by the others for some time that my idea was a flawed one, I held up my hand. That's not a bad thought, actually. If we induce a sudden, total, shipwide sensor loss, they'll be scrambling to find the cause and effect repairs. It could make for a nice distraction. It'll also draw attention from outside, John replied. They'll be sure to report it immediately and draw extra scrutiny. Ah, but if their exterior proximity sensors are down too, no one will be eager to send help unless it's a matter of life and death. A small boat docking against a big ship that doesn't know exactly where it is at all times will be the loser in any accident. Around stations, for example, ships that lose procs are given a wide berth until they're online once more. Again, I'm talking about non-life-threatening situations. If General Store were to call for emergency responders, they'll definitely get them. If we craft a careful system loss, though, that doesn't require outside people to come help, we could probably fly right up, dock, and walk in through an airlock while the crew is occupied. They wouldn't even notice. Chris pulled at his chin, thoughtfully, then turned to his sensor specialists. Can you do it? Well, I, I don't know. Yes. John turned to the woman with a face sour enough to curdle vinegar. Please, you can get through a clarity mesh to do a point injection? Yes, she replied with confused simplicity, apparently failing to understand why he was annoyed. After a process update, our privileges would get elevated automatically. They're running state-of-the-art intrusion detection, he countered, his voice and irritation both rising alarmingly. Keep it cool, Mavis ordered, the first words she'd spoken since the meeting had begun. Sorry, the quiet, wild-haired woman said, as if she'd been the one to shout. John, Chris asked at last, as if to put a period on all the speculation and brainstorming. Are you saying that you two cannot crack their system and initiate a sensor loss? I need a yes or no from the lead sensor spesh. The other man was still looking wonderingly at his fellow expert, but finally responded. It's not as simple as she says, but, well, maybe. Definitive answer. Then yes, he nearly barked again, but seemed shocked by his own tone. With a deep, Slow breath and a momentary aversion of his eyes, he got his temper in check. We can do it, I think, but it will take time and there's a lot of risk. It can't look like an attack on their system, or they'll definitely call for outside help. It would be a security issue then, and team will respond accordingly. This seemed obvious once he'd said it, and I agreed with his assessment. There's a fighter detachment from Liquidator stationed in high orbit around this planet on a carrier frame, I confirmed. If they get scrambled by a security alert, they'll be outside General Store in just 40 minutes' time. We'd never get away. Then we need flawless execution, Chris concluded. Captain, I believe this is our best course of action. Do you agree? Our ML had apparently learned from his mistake of riding roughshod over the commander of the ship when it came to big decisions. Mavis responded almost immediately, her voice coming from up the companionway to the cockpit and from each of our comms at the same moment. Given the circumstances and all the proposed ideas, I do. Let's make it happen. 
Christmas Giordano regarded us all. You heard the lady. I went back to Gunnery, hoping to track down a couple of old scenarios that I half remembered, to use as reference for a simulation that had just come to mind. Previously, I'd been working on ways to face the team fighter boats should they come streaking down from high vectors. That involved guns and ordnance. It now seemed wise to reorganize things. If we were detected in our approach or docking attempt, using General Store as a shield would be a cravenly effective way to avoid any engagements. With the big ship in the line of fire, the fighter boats couldn't attack. They'd have to close distance carefully and waste time moving to covering vectors. In the meantime, we could be dropping deeper into PS2GG's gravity well. It would provide a speed boost which Mavis could use to move us off obliquely before team could get us in their sights. Then we'd rely on the stealth to vanish into the black once more. These sims were looking good, and I was confident of having all those bases I was responsible for fairly well covered. I had just locked in one scenario as the base reference to be called upon in an active threat environment, only swapping out real-time data, when John and Stina both proclaimed surprise over the open channel. What is it? I challenged, scanning Gunnery's feeds for signs of unexpected movement or changes, but there were none. We have a significant temperature increase along General Store's hull where the lines for its main drive's pre-firing system are laid out. SS-1 pronounced. There is corresponding EMF on the electrical circuits for all thruster points, SS-2 put in. Then she added, Orbital control is talking to them now. They're prepping engines, Mavis stated, watching the same data. And they're going some distance, Chris concluded. Main drives mean more than just an orbital correction. The moment they fire those up, I stated to one and all, flashing back on a childhood of watching my mother at her job, a system traffic specialist back in the Alliance. Orbital control will be monitoring them closely. If they move off and leave us behind, will anyone be able to see us if they're looking this way? There was a moment of confused silence until Dieter chimed in. Maybe. The temperature-matching equipment might not be able to compensate. We'd be a cool silhouette against the warm mass propellant in General Store's wake. We have to stay with them, then, Chris said. Move along with them as they go. We can't dock like that, I commented. Wouldn't we be noticeable near the hull? Maybe not, with most system-wide sensors still down, and if we stay relative, Mavis replied, sounding both hopeful and decisive. I'm initiating our own startup sequence. We either get clear right now, or we go with them. To John, Chris asked, Did we capture their log flight plan? Uh, yeah, we should have. Hold on a sec. Now, John, we only have a sec. They're moving to the L2 position, Stina put in, having found the relevant data quickly. L2? I questioned. Then they're heading to the station. Oh boy, there are a lot of eyes over there. John said nervously, and it gave everyone pause. For what it's worth, I put in during the considered silence that followed. Even if we're spotted and team surrounds us, they can't shoot if we're close to that ship. 
There was more silence, and then our captain spoke at last. Sounds like as much assurance as we're gonna get. Prepare for movement, people. Next stop, LaGrange Point 2. You have been listening to Risk Analysis, a science fiction novel written and read by David Collins Rivera. You can contact me at lostinbronx at gmail.com. That's L-O-S-T-N-B-R-O-N-X at gmail. You can also check out my site at cavalcadeaudio.com and sign up for my newsletter, where you'll find exclusive content and early releases. This story is copyright 2016 by the author and is released under a Creative Commons Attribution Sharealike 4.0 international license. Feel free to use it for any purpose, even commercial, and I encourage you to do so. The Star Drifter theme is a piece called i by Trunks and can be found on SoundCloud.com. The theme for Risk Analysis is called The Inventor by Zach Beaver and is available on SoundCloud.com. Risk Analysis is a work of fiction and is not based upon nor meant to portray any person, living or dead, nor any particular place or situation. Thank you for listening. Take care.